2: Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this is Star Talk. This is Cosmic Queries edition. Yeah. Cosmic Queries. And I, 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 I'm, I'm ambivalent whether I prefer Cosmic Queries that is single topic or whether it's potpourri. Mm-hmm. This one is potpourri, which is easier to stump me. And if we're going to do a potpourri, I don't want to do it alone. Okay. But I know who to fu- who to call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've got like a bat signal, and my friend and colleague Charles Lou. Charles, <laughs>
3: hi Neil. There you go. Or shall I say Robin? <laughs> so
2: this is this is not your first time on Star Talk. It's True. your your nth time on Star Talk, as we say. That <laughs> means you've lost count, and it's some some large number algebraically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Eugene, we've we have questions that come to us over our Facebook pages and our and our and our. Uh, Twitter and, and other outlets, and, and sometimes we can g- gather them into one topic, but other times we can't, and this is a potpourri, and so I've no, I have not seen the questions, no. Eugene is going to read them. And you and I are going to try to answer them. That's what this is. And if we can't, we just say we have no clue. Go on to the next then one.
4: Then I will answer it. <laughs> if you don't, don't know, I probably know it.
2: And and Charles might, and I might not even agree on an answer. That would be kind oh, of fun. We'll see. That would be awesome. do
4: scientists ever disagree? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so let's do this. Okay. All right. Uh, what do you have, Eugene? Well, this is uh, from Patreon. A Patreon. Oh, wait,
2: wait, by the way, just quick, uh, our Patreon supporters are one of the, the categories of Patreon support gets your question asked first yeah so i don't know what that's worth to you in supporting star talk but that's how that's what's going on there and the reason why i have charles is charles knows so much about random stuff (laughs) like spooky amounts of random stuff
4: Mm -hmm. is that good or bad neil it's it's both (laughs) we'll find out what you know and then i'll let you know if it's good or bad
2: all right there you go eugene you'll you're the adjudicator go okay
4: uh, Kelia Silvis asks, oh, and Jeremy Kaiser together from Minnesota. They ask, and They
2: are Patreon supporters. Thank yes. you for your support.
4: Thank you. Will asteroid mining ever be financially viable from a purely business standpoint?
2: Ooh, let me answer that. And then Chuck might have a, have a, have a, have a, have a uh, additive to that. Mm-hmm. I, I did not believe that it could be. Financially lucrative because if there's gold on an asteroid, mm-hmm. then you go get it What did it cost you to get the gold it probably more than the whatever thousand dollars an ounce it's going for now So what's the point until I spoke with asteroid mining people who said in the fu- in the future? We're gonna have operations in space Manufacturing in space on the moon on Mars at at, at uh, the gravitational balance points the Lagrangian points and they will need raw materials and so you would go mine the asteroid, take the raw materials to these other places, and then you don't have to go in and out of Earth's atmosphere in our gravitational well. Is that right. about wh- where you said on this, Charles? I think
3: so. Uh, so within, say, 30 or 40 years, it won't be feasible, but as soon as we get manufacturing in space, it will start becoming economically more feasible.
4: Is there an amount of platinum that an asteroid could have that would make sense to bring it back to Earth?
2: So i thought about this and let's say there is such an amount and then you bring it back to the earth What does it do to the platinum market? It completely drops the price of platinum. Okay, so now watch you say well, that's bad You might say however if the price of platinum drops or anything that's previously cherished and in rare quantities Creative other things you can do with that material start to gurgle up in the on the landscape of innovation Right. And not that I can think of one now, but Charles, uh what's what's an example when we finally f- oh, aluminum when yeah. it was first extracted from bauxite? Yes, it was a cherished metal. It was light. It it, it people were replacing silver with it. Yeah. It was you wore aluminum as a as a because to show you were wealthy. That's yeah. right. And then once that process, it's not mining an asteroid, but it's the no. same idea. Once that process became more and more efficient and cheaper, yeah. and now we throw away aluminum.
3: We wrap our food in
4: aluminum. We
2: wrap up an yeah. unthinkable thing back when they yes. first extracted it from bauxite. That's Would right. It, so then I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to completely collapse the market. Right. Of a metal that is previously rare. So
4: what if it was a metal that has not yet been discovered? That would be the only thing that might be valuable enough to bring back?
2: I think we, well, Charles, correct me if I'm wrong, the periodic table of elements is complete at this point. Uh, well,
3: up to about 114 on the atomic number scale, yeah. So what but, about 115? Uh, is that not possible? Uh, that has a half-life that's so short that it would disintegrate, it wouldn't survive in an asteroid. But Mm. what you might be getting at, Eugene, is the issue uh, of having rare earths, you know, little tiny percentages of things that we don't normally use a lot right now, but say we put in semiconductors to increase mm. the ability of our cell phones to run microtransistors and things like that.
2: Yeah, cause so, just because just because they're, they're, they're rare on Earth doesn't mean it. they're rare somewhere right. else, right? Exactly. <laughs>
4: they're rare Earth, not rare asteroid. Not rare asteroid. So <laughs> the answer yeah. is not a particularly great business model if you, right now.
2: Yeah. yeah, Except it could completely transform civilization yes. in the utility of one element versus yeah. another.
4: Once you're in yeah. space, it's easier to get more gold in space. Keep going. Um, All right. So Megan Fischel, also a Patreon uh, patron, asks, a few of my astrology-inclined friends claim the reason... (laughs) I know. Graeme, the reason my iPhone has been a a bit dodgy recently is that Mercury is in retrograde. Is there any validity to their claim? Charles?
3: No. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Wow. Let's say this. Mercury does go in retrograde. But when it does, we can't see it because it's actually in the direction of the sky that the sun is. So we wouldn't be able to detect it anyway in any visible format. And so in terms of what's happened to the cell phone or anything like that, uh, any kind of effect is completely non-existent. Now, it's interesting that you say this, though, because I was getting on a bus once. Uh, in New York's Port Authority about 10 years ago.
2: And the bus went retrograde.
3: Yeah, (laughs) somebody barely got on the bus, was like dashing on and sat next to me and said, I know i was late because Mercury is in retrograde. I just knew it. I just knew it. So, maybe, you know, collective belief Creates a fantasy that might be propagated to this day in modern cell phones who knows
4: <laughs> Yeah, too bad. They didn't leave, leave 15 minutes earlier
2: and another point about <laughs> the concept of retrograde the very word Retrograde traces from a time when we had no notion that earth was in motion around the Sun and so people actually believed that mercury would be in motion in space slow down stop reverse itself and then pick up its previous motion slightly after that, as though that was a physical thing happening to Mercury. Mm-hmm. And uh, retrograde, all it is, is what is your point of view on objects that are all in, in harmonious together. orbit moving around the sun? And yeah. so so and I thought when you talked about the person miss, almost missing their bus, I yeah. thought you would say when you're on a bus looking out the window, see another bus, and you see that bus go backwards, and half the time you see that, you say, you're actually going forwards. Yeah. Right? So you're going to say, oh, it's backward bust. No, you're the one in movement, not that. And so a lot of that language and a lot of that cultural uh, 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 misappropriation of cosmic phenomena came about because we did not know that we were all moving around the sun. It's that simple. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Next.
4: Uh, ben Yeast from Facebook asks, I read that if our universe turns out to work a certain way, it's possible for black holes to rotate so rapidly they prevent an event horizon from forming. If we do live in a universe where the, these naked singularities are possible, what evidence of their existence would we look for?
2: Ooh, Charles, I get it. <laughs> well, that, that's a hard one. Right. Charles, take it <laughs> off. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> it
3: might be, he might be re- uh, referring to something called a maximally spinning curve black hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is theoretically possible, although it wouldn't last as long as uh, a typical black hole that's spinning at a slower speed just because it wouldn't stay in equilibrium very long. Uh, What's that length of time we're talking about, like milliseconds or years or hours? Well, you know, I have to go back and check my general relativity notes from graduate school. I'm sorry. (laughs) 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 Me too.
2: (laughs) me too. No, no. Charles, this is is cosmic queries. You can say... I don't know. I don't or know. I once knew, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I'll get back to you, call me in the morning. So so we're I alive. Mean, if we don't know, we'll just go on to the next question. Yeah, that, that's, that's part cool. of how this that's yes. a, part of how we roll here.
3: No, that's fair. Okay. Now, naked singularities though, if you're looking for them, you're kind of looking for them the same way as you look for any other black hole through gravitational lensing. You okay. want to see what they have done to the view of space and objects in space behind them. And by the patterns that they create, you can deduce whether they are uh, maximally spinning or whether they're static or if they're supermassive or any combination thereof.
2: So, so once again, the power of inference, once we have good data on what, they're, where, uh, on what other things are doing in their vicinity. Yes. Yeah. Or light paths that go past them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. What else you
4: got? Uh, Dick Craig mm-hmm. he, from Facebook, he wants to know, can the mass of the earth change and wouldn't this slow or speed up
2: our time? Well, the math of Earth is changing every day. We're we're gaining several hundred tons of meteor dust a day. Oh, really? Yes. But, Charles, aren't we also losing some air to the – or isn't – Yes. A small
3: amount going out. Uh, The mass coming in is still more than the mass going out, though, on a given day. So So we are growing a little more massive every day. So the
2: mass going out is we're losing some of our upper layer of our atmosphere. Yes. Correct? Okay. So – but 300 tons sounds like a lot not compared to the mass of the Earth. And I try to run some numbers on this, Charles, and I I got something like uh, a a gnat flying full speed ahead into the side of an elephant Mm. was some huge factor greater than what Earth would feel if it got hit by a comet slamming into its side. And so you don't see elephants concerning themselves with their mass by how many gnats land on its back.
4: Yeah, but if the elephants became bigger every day from gnats, you know, (laughs) give it a billion years, it's a little bit bigger.
2: Yeah, okay. All right, so let's answer that question, Charles. So make the Earth a little more massive. So so what? Well, Earth is
3: 6 times 10 to the 21 tons, right? If you add 300 tons a day... That's, what, a million tons a year? That would still take longer than the age of the universe to double Earth's mass. So we would have to wait a very, very, very long time to see any gravitational effects. Any, right. import, Earth, any
2: meaningful gravitational any effect. Any meaningful gravitational yeah, yeah. effect. Mm-hmm. I, I have, have time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, 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 it's, the and, way they, and if Earth's mass go up, then we all start weighing a little bit more. Yes, there
3: you go. right. But there's no effect in our orbit, really, because the way that uh, Newton's law of gravity works, the speed of our orbit around the sun uh, would not change unless uh, appreciably or measurably unless we started to approach the mass of the sun. And uh, Earth is... Less than one three hundred thousandth the mass of the sun. So that's not going to happen for right. an even longer time right. than the age
2: of the universe. And by the way, what Charles is doing here, we spend many, many years. In solving problems <laughs> thinking about how the universe works by, s- by recognizing yeah, this quantity is large that one is small mm-hmm. here we can ignore the small quantity the most or this quantity divides away and this this, this 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 these are tactics we have to gain some sense of how the universe works without worrying about it on such a level of detail that it becomes a distraction
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, I, uh, you know, just quickly in my head, I would say your analogy of gnat on an elephant is is very close uh, mm-hmm. to the actual effect. You can imagine if Mount Everest were hit by a snowball every day, how long would it take before Mount Everest would actually be appreciably more massive or more large, say, yeah. than it is now? And the answer is a very, very, very long right. time. Yeah.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. What do you got? Uh,
4: Michael Vaca from Facebook, he asks... I'm concerned I'm concerned Snowden is right about strong encryption making alien signals look like background noise. Are there other ways to sense life remotely? I, I don't know about what Snowden. Well, means
2: so about. we interviewed uh, uh, Ed Snowden yeah. for Star Talk, and we are proud on Star Talk to have brought him to Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so I had the very first conversation with him on Twitter that he promised he would do. On air with us, and so in that conversation with him, we talked about encryption. Mm-hmm. And Charles, there's an interesting part. I don't know if you caught that episode. Uh-huh. So encryption. So hold encryption aside for the moment. Let's look at uh, a JPEG, uh, a JPEG or MPEG. So what does it do? It 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 takes a signal that otherwise has a lot of information in it, but maybe not so much, and it somehow combines uh, content in a way that reduces. The total information a little bit, but retains as much as it can so that you can um, uh, minimize the size of the signal as you transport it, okay? So in an image of you right now, there's a large white area background. I can represent that mathematically rather than having to retain all the details of that, and my mathematical representation is more efficient to move through space through anywhere than if I represented the whole thing. So. So there is a hypothesis that a sufficiently intelligent alien will take their signal and JPEG it so effectively and so efficiently, if I can use that JPEG as a verb, that there'll be no discernible information left Mm -hmm. for someone to reach in and decode it. And so they're perfectly communicating with one another all the time, but we, trying to eavesdrop, will think it's completely noise.
3: So this is an accidental kind of uh yeah,
2: an accidental code. So if you want to mm-hmm. eavesdrop on civilizations, the most efficient way to send signals is to take whatever is decodable in the signal and re-represent it more efficiently.
3: Right. Well, that kind of data compression uh, that you describe for JPEGs and so forth, they have an algorithm, right? Uh, so you can if you knew how they compressed it, you could unravel this information. Well, that's the
2: key, but then you have to send the key on the other side. Yeah. So we'd have to ask the aliens, please give us a key to your yeah. d- encoding method so that we can eavesdrop.
4: Okay, so what? no one thinks that we're encrypting some stuff. They're encrypting stuff so strongly. Not Not encrypting, but but um compressor and compressing, compressing. compressing. Yeah, yeah it's not Sorry. so much
2: encryption it's it's compressing a signal so yeah. efficiently yeah. that the eavesdropper on it will no longer be able to distinguish it just from noise because right. if there's any discernible signal left in it left in it that meant there's more uh, uh, encryption, no oh, there's more compression. compression, that that it can still survive.
4: So then the other question is are there other ways to sense life remotely? But I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. Oh, just see
2: if they're polluting their atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> just if the just ex, look for if
4: planets exo- with other cars?
2: Yeah, yeah. If the exoplanet has uh, aerosols, uh, ozone depletion, yeah. uh, smog, that's a guarantee there's no, no sign of intelligent life.
3: <laughs> and and um, <laughs> if If we are able to watch some system for a long period of time, for example, we can watch for periodic behavior, right? Like just the way that decades ago people thought that maybe pulsars, which are uh, dead stars that turn very rapidly, uh, maybe that their regular beating was a sign of intelligent life. Right. Right. Uh, if we had many such beats coming from, say, a single solar system or something like that, then we might imagine that there were many such things happening. And, and if there were another, in other words,
2: it's not random. And so yes. you've got Finding a non-random. Yeah, if it's not random and it's predictable, then maybe somebody's doing the non-randoming and the predicting on the other end. Right. Yeah. We got just a few more seconds for this segment. Uh, give me. Do you have a quick one, or do we have to uh, delay it?
4: To um, I'll ask a quick quick one. Quick one. Go. Uh Linton John Davidson from Facebook asks, uh, how do I get people interested in science?
2: <laughs> that's a quick so, oh, you, you liar. You are but lying. I, you are lying. Li- you. you said quick in what I
4: interpreted as I could read that very quickly.
2: <laughs> Charles, <laughs> but, uh, give me your best five, uh eight-second answer to that. Listen to Neil. You're listening to Star Talk. Stay tuned for another segment.
1: PXG.com slash StarTalk, code
2: StarTalk. Welcome back to Star Talk. Here's more of this week's episode.
4: Matt Alley from Facebook slash San Antonio asks, Trillions of years in the future when the universe is in its final whimpers, how might an advanced civilization be able to hold on to survival by harvesting energy from the last remaining celestial bodies?
2: Ooh. (laughs) Wow. They're talking about a future where all the gas that currently coexists with stars has been turned into stars, and the stars one by one start to burn out. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when you go some trillions of years into the future, they will be the last civilization on the last planetary system around that last star. So Charles, what are your reflections on that?
3: Well, uh, he, he the questioner may be referring even further into the future when protons themselves start to break down and then black holes themselves dissipate through Hawking radiation uh, 10 to the 100 years from now. Uh, in that case, then there's really no way to harness that energy, because it's all kind of waste, heat, entropy, and so forth. But you could imagine— wait, wait,
2: just to be clear, so what we're saying is, you can have stars burn down, but there's still other ways to extract energy from phenomenon in the universe, and right. and— but the universe is actually winding down in every possible measurable way. And so when the particles decay to even lighter, smaller particles, then they can't decay into something else. And then you are left with a particle energy wasteland but
4: is cosmos. it is it possible to have some sort of artificial planet that you live on that
2: no no turns- that, that's that, this is the this is the deep part about it because anything artificial meant you created a thing that has a metabolism and a source of energy yeah. to drive it
4: and the energy the will be completely you, gone.
2: The very fact yeah. that you would claim to be alive in that situation, you you are producing energy. You have a body temperature above air temperature. You 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 are a machine. Thank you. You you can, <laughs> <laughs> and even when you die, you're there's a you're a, a, a right. microbial machine with your molecules are still decaying.
4: There won't be enough dead bodies for this artificial planet to keep eating. Oh, is I'm, what you're saying, I'm, uh,
2: Charles? Yeah. How about the dead body energy source?
3: Well, you could do the best you can, but in the end, once you get to the true heat death of the universe, uh, there's really nothing you can do other than, I don't know, maybe start a new universe.
4: Uh
3: (laughs) Aha! There is a solution, and it's to start (laughs) a new universe. I did not invent that solution. You you should uh, refer to one of Isaac Asimov's great short stories Uh called The Last Question. Oh, I think it's really, really profound and deep. He wrote it very, very well.
2: Okay. All right. I I think I've read that long ago, but I'm going to pick it up again to find out. Right. Thanks for that reminder.
4: Create a new universe. Create a new universe. I don't know if it's trillions of years from now. That science might exist.
2: (laughs) All right. All right. What else you got?
4: Uh, I have more. Okay. Jazz, uh, that's uh, Jazz Gonzalez asks, um, hypothetically, if someone was to successfully create and open a wormhole to go back to a past time. Would that wormhole continue to suck in atoms and the environment around it, eventually imploding and possibly destroying the universe around us?
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> <Right>. Okay. Great. <laughs> right. No.
1: Yeah.
3: no,
2: no. Wait, 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 wait. So, wait. So Is there are a handful
3: of reasons or just like, no. Well, a wormhole, when you create something like that, um, it's naturally going to collapse in on itself.
2: So it's unstable.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. unless you continue to put tremendous amounts of energy to keeping it open, right? Okay. Uh, and so it won't spontaneously sort of go out of control and grab as much stuff as possible, sort of sucking everything in well, on what itself. What would be
2: cool, though, is if the wormhole, which gives does give you access to the past— which does give you access to the past through certain trajectories through it. Yes. If you put the entire universe back through the wormhole, you can send the whole universe back uh, to yesterday. Yeah. Whoa. How about that? In principle. Mm, great.
4: Did yeah, we just, you, what did we just, just discover? <laughs> what exactly are you wow. thinking?
2: Charles, call me later on that one. We, yeah. we'll, okay. we get the equations on that. I
3: think we got a
4: paper yeah. to
2: write. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, um, what else do you have? Okay, wait, wait, Just just before we went to the break, there was that question. Please explain how big a what is a gram? What was it? Uh,
4: g- no, the gram. Uh, sorry, it was it was around here. Oh, gram's yeah. number. Explain gram's number, like gram cracker.
3: G R A H A M. Yeah, apostrophe S. I number. had assumed
4: it
2: was
3: like uh, like.
2: Sorry, I've never heard theorem. of it. I've never yeah. heard of it. Have you? It's you- it's if you take a
3: certain uh, geometric expansion of numbers to try to get to big numbers. You know how like. Uh, a billion is a big number because it's got nine zeros after a one, and a Google's even bigger because it's got one hundred yeah. zeros. I read about one that one in Numbers and Magazine. A, a Googleplex, which is also oh, it's one thousand. of those
2: big numbers, is that has a name? Right. Is what you're it's saying?
3: It's a gigantic number, okay. uh, and it's based on you can construct it using a geometric gotcha. uh, expansion. The only
2: big number I knew of was Skew's big. number, and I didn't know Graham Graham had a number too. A big Skew's yeah.
3: number, which is bigger, you
2: think? that's ten to the tenth to the tenth to the thirty fourth power. Why? No, why so numbers, weird at the end? Which dwarfs a Googleplex itself? Right. Dwarfing. Why a is it
4: to the thirty fourth, not thirty fifth?
2: Because, because, because did it. Okay. <laughs> right. No, no, I don't know. I mean, they come up with these numbers. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. it has surely has some significance. In mathematics, right? That I cannot glean. Okay. At this point,
3: right now, right. Graham's number is actually way larger than even Skew's number. Okay. I don't know exactly it's how. Three times as large. <laughs> <laughs> it's tw- it's twice as big. Twice as big. <laughs> right. right. It's just very big. If uh, what I have heard is that if you take um, all the numbers that Graham's number would take to write it out in in actual physical form, even if each number, I mean, each, numeral, each each, each numeral. numeral were smaller than an atomic nucleus, there would still not be enough room in the entire observable universe to hold the representation of Graham's number. It's a very big number.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Eugene, for confirming yeah, yeah. that fact. <laughs> After Charles just explained how big it was. <laughs>
4: now I really have a sense. It sounds quite big.
2: Okay. All right, what um, else you
4: got? All right. Uh, let's, let's go. All right. Uh, from Eddie from Godly, Texas asks... Uh, Regarding the Fermi paradox, if aliens do exist, which of the possibilities do you think is the most likely scenario?
2: I, Charles and I will trade off on this. I would say the most likely scenario... I have two most likely scenarios. One of them is that they have actually visited Earth. Well, do Contro- we need
3: to explain to people what Fermi Paradox is to begin with? you right. That's probably a great
4: call. You're right. I, yeah. thought,
2: I thought Eugene would do that, though. But. No, <laughs> sure. I'm assuming
4: it's uh, the ways aliens might have exist or visited. No, no.
2: So if you, you can run the numbers on this, and if aliens are like humans and live as long as humans do and are ambitious like humans, then they might have a space program, and then they would go... Colonize a planet. Yep, and then that colony would then build its own space program and colonize two planets, and then those. I two- would have
4: colonized two planets.
2: Oh no! So so we that's- we're one planet. We colonize two planets. Each of those two planets colonize two planets. Oh, I right. See. So you it's it's two to the nth power. Mm-hmm. which grows rapidly. It's it's an yeah, exponential. Yeah. And it turns out you can occupy every single planet in the galaxy in less time than it takes for you to evolve from one species to another. And so under that calculation, if there are intelligent aliens anywhere who had this ability, where are they now? They should be pitching tent right next to us. Mm -hmm. And Enrico Fermi, a famous Italian physicist, uh, proposed this question. So either there are no aliens out there or there's some other explanation for why we don't see them. And so I have two explanations one of them is th- they came to earth already mm-hmm. and and saw uh, humans and concluded there's no sign of intelligent life on earth and left okay had did have one then another one is maybe they landed the same day that comic-con was happening. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, nobody
4: so they're in san
3: diego,
2: <laughs> in
4: san diego.
2: <laughs> uh, but charles you have a do you have a, a less comical answer to this question oh, this is a very serious question
3: well um One of our colleagues, uh, Steve Soder actually told me this idea.
2: But Steve Soder co-wrote both cosmos series in 1980 and the one that I, that I, uh, hosted. Go on.
3: Yeah. Um, Steve said that it's possible that once intelligent civilizations achieve the ability to colonize, they wind up all destroying themselves before they successfully do the colonization. Uh, If you can, for example, create a spacecraft that can go some tremendous speed, a 1% the speed of light or something like that, you're too tempted to use it as a weapon against your enemies rather than doing something productive like exploring space. I think think the argument
2: was even more subtle than that. It was whatever is the gene for expansionism, if I expand to here and you expand to there, I also want to expand to where you went. Right, and so you have overlapping borders Correct. of expansion, and that is has the seeds of its own undoing.
3: Right, so you it have creates a, annihilation so like a- before we see them. So we, in that scenario, are doomed to to self destruction at some point when we get sufficiently advanced enough uh, technology to do so. It's That's a very sort of a unidealic Star Trek is yes. what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Eugene's hit the other one that I think of, right, it, it, is that uh, aliens are sufficiently benevolent that they hide and disguise whether or not they're there so that they allow us to develop and become citizens of the universe in a cheerful that way. That is so
2: beautiful, Charles. Well, <laughs> or, I didn't invent it. Or yeah. we are their computer program and uh, somebody's PhD thesis to create a yes, universe. We're, we're the I PhD mean, dish. Yeah, how long
4: would it take us? Like, how long do you think before humans could call it? like actively colonize some of You have to
2: colonize it on a level where then you become another civilization that needs no reference back to the original. So we speak English in the United States because colonists came from England. Yeah. and, And so England, in a sense, landed on the moon because descendants of their colonies did that. Right. Right, So you you have to become a self-sufficient thing and not just still on the dole. But meaning how li- so.
4: how likely is it that there's civilizations like ours that just also can't colonize? That's the Cuz
2: we're too stupid or too ineffective to know how.
4: But uh, and then there's other ones like that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't see any signs on our horizon that we are that kind of civilization that we're going to occupy every corner of the galaxy because we're that awesome. I don't see that <laughs> happening. All right. Next question, what do you have?
4: Okay, Ronald James from, uh, on Facebook asks, how fast is the universe expanding from an Earth-centric perspective in light years per Earth year? Also, how fast is the rate of expansion, same units, increasing due to this dark energy
3: junk?
2: Yeah, Charles, you have those numbers on, in your head? I don't, well, I don't the have them current the expansion
3: rate of the universe, uh, astronomers refer to as the Hubble constant, right, which is 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Uh, and if you do the proper unit calculations, that just basically means that we are expanding at about one fourteen billionth of our own diameter per second.
2: Oh, okay. So every yeah. year we so expand every year one, year 14
3: we one 14 billionth of our current diameter. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, you have that. You. I did you, the. Calculation. You agree?
4: Yeah, you agree. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> when you were not sure, I was like, I okay.
2: By the way, uh, you can imagine growing anything at that rate. Yeah. Right. What grows at one fourteenth of its size? No, one fourteen billionth of its size per year. Hatred. <laughs> <laughs> so that is so that, that's the rate at which the universe is growing. Okay. Yeah. So good way to think about it, Charles. I'll I'll use that again for sure. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Ocean. Uh, McIntyre asks, could neutrinos and their oscillations play a role in detecting, mapping, and understanding dark energy?
1: Ooh.
3: 100%. Yeah. Um, Neil, you want to explain neutrino oscillations to people?
2: Yeah, so neutrino, they're different species. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <You> <laughs>
4: I like the answer of yes, and then I'm like, no, yeah, but I wonder, other than on Star Trek where you create a net and then you can see the invisible alien, but how else does it work?
2: So neutrinos is one of the, are one of the fundamental particles of the universe. Uh, neutrinos don't decay into some other kind of particle so that's we consider them fundamental
4: and there would you have enough to use the to as energy at the end of the universe yeah no
2: because once you decay to the lowest energy neutrino you're done so we have there're three different families of neutrinos and the neutrino oscillations is a fancy word for saying a neutrino moving through space can actually transmogrify into another species of neutrino. So it'd be like I tossed you a a basketball and you caught a football. Right. Right. And that story has an interesting past uh, history because we made a prediction of what rate the sun should be producing neutrinos based on our understanding of how the sun works. And we were not measuring those neutrinos. So either we were completely wrong with our understanding of thermonuclear fusion, or the neutrinos was, were misbehaving, and that's what we found. We didn't know the neutrino would turn into a different species c- between being formed in the center of the sun and reaching us here on Earth and our detectors. And
4: there's no transfer of energy between it changing from a basketball
3: to a football?
2: Uh, generally you lose energy. What happens there? You you Yeah, you, you, you do change energy. Yeah, yeah, and, it's and an energy state. That,
3: okay. The missing neutrino problem was precisely that, because it realized that the detectors that we were trying to use to find the neutrinos from the sun were only sensitive to one kind of neutrino at a certain energy level and not to the other kind. Right, right, exactly. And-
2: You're listening to Star Talk Radio. Stay tuned. More up next.
1: IXL. IXL is used in ninety-five of the top one hundred school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive twenty percent off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com/starttalk. Visit IXL.com/starttalk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best
2: price. I live by routines, especially my same day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Ship.com. Welcome back. Here's more of Star Talk.
4: James Kultus from Twitter asks, What are some of the most exciting astrophysics discoveries we've made in 2015?
3: Oh, well, the New Horizons flyby of Pluto. Pluto. Pluto was rocking the whole year. Dawn's flyby of Ceres. And on September 14th, 2015, there was a gravitational wave that came through
2: Earth. So, yeah, so that happened in September. So that was good. Keep going on the list. Oh, Uh, more? No, yeah, yeah. You gave three things. Go on. Anything else?
3: Duh. Gee.
2: I got, one. Uh, I got one. I got one. I think this counts. SpaceX successfully re-landed the first stage of its rocket,
3: which that opens up a really reusability
2: cool. of rockets for the future. It's a it's a commercial technological achievement. But I think we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't underestimate what potential value that can have in inexpensive space flight going forward.
3: Yeah, Blue Horizons did something like
2: that too, right? Yeah. Blue Origin, excuse me. No, but it didn't go into orbit, I don't That's think. That's right. Yeah. That's this correct. one orbited, deployed satellites came back and landed safely. The, no, the sorry, sorry. First sorry. stage came down. First it stage, and the deploy. rest of it went up to orbit. That's correct. Yes. But in this other one, I don't think anything went into orbit.
3: Right. It just went up to the 100 kilometer level. Yeah, like, the, the atmosphere
2: edge. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. good question there. Okay, keep it coming.
3: Uh, B. Damari asks, uh, can
4: dark matter be 3D matter in another dimension? Maybe it fell into a
3: black hole? Uh, It could have, but the thing is, we know so little about dark matter, it can literally be anything. That's why Uh, we call it dark matter. Yeah, cosmologist Rocky Cobb likes to say that dark matter is a model in search of a theory, which basically means almost like... uh, Millennia ago, when people designed things like epicycles and, and retrograde motion explanations, uh, that we're almost at that stage. So it could literally be anything. It's not likely to be certain things, but it could be anything. Okay.
2: I got to go with Charles on that.
4: Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. We're all three of us. Uh, Jacob Saber asks uh, When the sun becomes a red giant, what will happen to the asteroid belt and surviving planets?
2: Ooh, nothing nothing, yeah. so the red the sun becomes a red giant, and it'll make a very beautiful nebulae surrounding a very dense core. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, that the red giant is not going to reach the size of the asteroid belt in the red giant stage. Mm-hmm. It's not. And so the the asteroid belt doesn't know or care that the sun swelled up. It's the same amount of mass centered at the center of the solar system. so uh, now the the heat distribution among the planet, the the family of planets and comets and asteroids will be different. Mm-hmm. Earth would have been burnt to a cinder. Mercury would have been vaporized deep within. Uh, same with Venus. So,
4: yeah, is there a planet we could move to that would be maybe equivalent of what Earth? Uh, uh, is Charles,
2: like now? I think we can move to Mars, can't we?
3: Uh, no, I'm afraid
4: is not. Too
2: close? Mars is
3: still too close. Uh, in so,
2: th- what are the moons of Jupiter then?
3: You perhaps? might do all right in the moons of Jupiter, but there is still a big solar wind, right? Remember that the process of becoming a red giant takes hundreds of millions of years. And so in that process, as it grows, more solar material will slough off. And if there's too much of that, it will still blow away atmosphere and things like that. But uh, once we get out to Titan or maybe Triton, the solid material should be able to hold together at least for a time.
2: Right. And we mentioned the moons of Jupiter because Jupiter itself offers no surface on which to land. Right. But but of course the moons do.
3: Maybe we go
4: to those moons and then as we do that and then we move to the next place. I mean, it's not ideal. But you
3: know that's five billion years from now. Yeah. Uh, five billion years of evolution. If we're still needing to be in spaceships to go somewhere solid to live and survive, I think we're in deep trouble evolutionarily.
4: Yeah. Meaning you think we'll be energy beings? <laughs> that's uh, kind of what he said. Fly, fly around solving crimes. That's kind of what he said. We'll be. I'd appreciate that. Sure.
3: <clears throat> okay. Yeah.
4: All right. Anybody, you think it'll take time? Like, I can't do it in the next year or two. <laughs> Let's just say it's something to look forward to. I okay. wouldn't change my retirement plans.
2: Next okay. question.
4: Okay. Um, Terry Carter asks, uh, is there presently any living thing on earth that could live on the moon or Mars?
2: Yeah. Not on the surface. I don't think on the surface, but you could probably hide stuff in the subterranean caverns of Mars. What do you think, Charles?
3: Yeah, it, I think, uh, you know, tardigrades have been big in the news lately as far as extremo tolerant organisms are concerned. These are little mites that live, for example, in places like your eyelashes, right? Uh, they can survive the vacuum of space for a period of time. Certainly, in if we go into low Earth orbit and then bring them back down, they have been shown to be able to survive the rigors of space for a while. If you can dig them down into, say, Mars, where there's quite a bit of frozen water, and maybe occasionally that frozen water becomes liquid, those tardigrades could survive.
2: They, they probably wouldn't like it, but they could survive. But probably not the Moon, we're saying.
3: Yeah. Uh, we don't know enough about the subsurface environment of the Moon to really know whether they could survive there, I, I imagine maybe there are some microorganisms that could. But
2: but every, uh, let me let me broaden that and say everything we know about complex organisms tells right. us we, we're hosed. And like cats place. would not. Cats, cats <laughs> no. no no chance. <laughs> right? Not no. No cats. We're under the five minute warning. Okay. And with this, we're now the lightning round. Okay, okay. Charles, it's. Uh, uh, we're, it's soundbite answers. We're gonna get as okay. many as okay. Ready, go.
4: Okay, Thomas asks: If a W hole entrance exists within an object's sphere of influence, does it affect objects on the other side?
3: I don't know. Yes. Uh, Charles, yes. go. Yes, but we don't know how yet. Okay.
4: Okay. Next, <laughs> the teen poet asks: Is it possible to use gravity to manipulate the flow and speed of light, and therefore outspeed it?
2: No. Okay, I, I agree with that. You can't beat a light beam anywhere unless you.
4: you Not even beat, if you're riding. A, you're a light beam riding a gravity wave.
2: No, no, you can. You know, if you ride, uh, you can't surf a gravity wave to go faster than the gravity waves.
3: No. The universe can expand faster than the speed of light overall, but anything in the universe in space-time cannot go faster than a beam of light going through that same space-time
2: area. Yeah, the light wins every every time. Okay,
4: next. Okay, Jeffrey wants to know, do you think we could put small asteroids in an orbit around the sun to use as a midpoint to get to Mars? In about 60 or 70 years,
3: I think. What do you think, Neil?
2: I don't see the need. To have, have a midpoint. What Good you would point. want are filling stations along the way and doing an, uh, a mid-air or mid-space refueling mm-hmm. because you're going to have energy of motion to get you from Earth to Mar- to, to Mercury. And that energy, you don't want to compromise that energy. You want to stay with it all the way and ride it in.
4: You want to have moving gas stations.
2: Moving gas stations, exactly. Filling right. stations. Are next.
4: Okay. Uh, if you had the equivalent money that we spent for Apollo today, what would your goal be?
2: Ooh. Uh, that would in today's dollars. It's about a hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. and uh, I don't Charles. What would you do with a hundred billion dollars?
3: I would try to stabilize the carbon dioxide emissions in our
2: atmosphere. Charles, that's so responsible of you. I mean, <laughs> come on. And
3: then once that was done, would you go to Mars? <laughs> oh, 100000000000 billion isn't enough to go to Mars with modern technology.
2: I know maybe. what I'll do. Okay, let me, no, That's too bad. Okay, I would try to be more noble than Charles was. I would use the $100 billion to make all 7 billion people on Earth so scientifically literate that any next decision they make all right will yeah. involve going to mars yeah. because they'll know the wisdom of it
4: and they'll, they'll and they'll own, fix it and they'll yeah, fix yeah. the problem yeah. next okay what are some tips you would give to someone studying physics in college
2: Uh, Take the hardest classes you can. Don't worry about whether it's an A or B uh, in your grade because at the end of the day, people will beat a path to your door for accomplishing things that no one else could because that's what it means to take a hard class. Take an easy class and get an A. You show people your grade, but that's the grade everyone else got and yep. you're no longer distinguished in the marketplace.
3: Neil, that is the most eloquent explanation that I've ever heard of that correct phenomenon.
2: Okay. <laughs> Says the man who knew nothing but straight A's his whole life. But go, uh,
4: go. <laughs> why why do all the planets orbit the sun in the same direction?
2: Oh, so there, uh, back in the mid-1700s, this is a, this, we think, that was solved by some great philosophers back then. One of them, was it Laplace, uh... Yeah, yeah, it's a plus. So it's called the nebular hypothesis. You have a huge cloud Mm -hmm. out of which you will make the solid stuff from collapsed pockets within it. It rotates. Everything in the universe rotates. And as this cloud collapses, it speeds up. Pockets form, and therefore everything that forms from that cloud will rotate with the same sense of direction as everything else and so 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 potent is that understanding that when something is moving in a weird direction relative to it that tells us it has a different origin and it's interloping through our own solar system and it's really really cool i think that is charles do i get your amen on that
3: you're right. Unless maybe something in the solar system whacked something else in that solar system. Yeah,
2: you can get whacked in the solar <laughs> system. So if
3: a moon hits another moon, something could go it could go different.
4: I didn't
2: know you work for the Sopranos. Yeah. Okay. Hey. You know. <laughs> yeah, you get whacked. Yeah. yeah. For example, uh, uh, is it uh, Neptune? Uh, you know, Uranus. Its orbit is flipped completely the other way. It doesn't rotate in the same rotate in the same direction as everybody else. Oh, really? I think something knocked it on its okay. uh, on its ear. You're listening to Star Talk. Stay tuned for another segment. Welcome back to Star Talk. Here's more of this week's episode. We're back, Star Talk, and this is the how Tweeted it is part of the show. Bill Nye joining me here. It's so good to be good here. Good to have you. And you tweet at Bill Nye. I do. It's nice, very nice. So I posted a tweet out not, not that long ago. Just came upon these are like brain droppings each day. So, but I know you've thought about this. So here it is Proud to be Homo sapiens, a curious species with DNA compelling us to explore, even if doing so puts your own life at risk.
5: Apparently. Uh, why? People are ready to kill Uh, themselves. Well, the word kill themselves. They're willing to take risks. Because taking risks, well, when you take a risk, there's a chance you'll succeed, at least when I take risks. You know, it's interesting because that's
2: not how I think of risk. I think when you take a risk, there's a chance of you dying.
5: Yeah. Well, there's, but there's that's, a left, no. There's it's fascinating. Non-zero. That's a fascinating uh, other way a, to think it about is risk. A, it is a uh, one-sum game the, mm-hmm. that which does not kill you, what you presume would leave you alive, right. and the risk is taken to, in the, with the chance of enriching yourself. And let me just put it this way, everybody, you could. You're a woman. You're a female. You could go with the accountant. There in the cave in ancient cave days, Og and Augette back there. Or you could take a chance on uh, on the guy who's a little wild, who goes over the hill, and maybe will invent PayPal and just get crazy rich. And so if you put your cards in with that guy, put your lot in with that guy, there's a chance that you will also succeed. What are you saying about accountants? I'm saying the accountant's a steady guy, but he may not strike it rich. So uh, there's some value in the striking rich scenario.
2: Okay, but if that were the case, there'd be no accountants.
5: Oh, no, because everybody's got pass a passage The guy who goes over the hill may get killed. Oh. There's lions and tigers and bears okay. and parasites. That'd be three
2: different continents, actually.
5: Uh- <laughs> Uh, all that aside, <laughs> I, I was trying to cover them all. There, there are penguins, uh, and uh, say You and, just uh, added a and, continent, and, right? And okay. There's some uh, there's some new world monkeys that are trouble.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> the point
5: is, out. Oh, uh, they're, uh, plus in Australia everything's venomous. So uh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So, if the guy that goes
2: over the hill gets the attracts the female. Mm-hmm. Then the male that stays in the cave doesn't
5: reproduce is that right no well it depends on the, the, what choice certain females make i'm saying there's value in the guy taking risk okay not that accountants don't take risk but <laughs> comedy is based on stereotypes and so our expectations which are based on stereotypes so my feeling is that the ancient cave accountants were more <laughs> conservative than the ancient cave over the hill let's go for it, explorers
2: okay and so the over the hill let's go forward explorers who never came back the accountant had all the women Charlie. Okay, that's how yes. the male accountant had all the women. Okay. Thanks for listening to Star Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Many thanks to our comedian, our guest, our experts. And I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Until next time, I bid you to keep looking up.
3: If you're shopping while working Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
5: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success.
4: From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is
3: available when you need it.